you're seeking biblical wisdom and understanding in these difficult and trying times, and you recognize the power of God's Word to delve deep into the issues of the heart, then welcome to Biblical Counseling Today with Dr. John Kwasney, husband, father, counselor, author, and teacher. Join us for Christ-centered, gospel-driven truth concerning our individual, marital, and parenting struggles. This is Biblical Counseling Today. For our final podcast of Season 2 of Biblical Counseling Today concerning the basic marital counseling issues we face, it makes sense that we should go back to the foundation of marriage. Remembering what marriage is by definition is essential for maintaining a healthy, God-glorifying marriage. It should be of no surprise that various definitions of marriage exist out there. Here's one we'll use today from the Oxford Dictionary. Marriage is the legally or formally recognized union of two people as partners in a personal relationship, historically and in some jurisdictions, specifically a union between a man and a woman. Now, this definition of marriage focuses on three characteristics. First, that marriage is a legal union that two people following the laws of their country or state have entered into a legal contract. This legal contract means they are bound to fulfill particular agreed-upon obligations until they would seek to dissolve that agreement. Second, it says that marriage may be considered as a formally recognized union. Either a church or a particular religion declares that two people are married. Married couples often wear rings on fingers in order to publicly declare that they are married. Third, this definition tells us that marriage is a partnership, a partner relationship. Two people enter a partnership where, again, they agree to be in close relationship with one another. Now, this definition ends with a reminder that a traditional marriage was between one man and one woman. But of course, that part of the definition of marriage no longer is relevant in many people's minds. So does this definition help us understand the true foundation of marriage? Not really. It may be accurate to say that marriage is a legally binding, formally recognized partnership, but that definition does not go far enough or deep enough. This sort of definition makes it sound like marriage is more like a business contract or a social convention, as if human beings made up the concept of marriage and then legislate it. It totally misses the fact that God not only instituted marriage, but he is the one that defines it and legislates it for us. How then, as Christians, should we think of the true foundation of marriage? And how will ensuring that we stay on a biblical foundation help us with every single problem that comes our way? Well, let's dig down deep and consider this truly foundational question. So here's a different definition of marriage given by the author Andreas Kostenberger from his very helpful book, Marriage and the Family. Marriage is, quote, a sacred bond instituted by and publicly entered into before God, whether or not this is acknowledged by the married couple. Now think about that definition for a moment. God not only instituted marriage, as we've already said, but God presides over every marriage, 
whether humans recognize the presence of a sovereign God or not. In other words, marriage is not just a human contract or a social convenience, but it is a covenant, a solemn bond entered into before a covenant-making and covenant-keeping God. Because God acts in covenant with human beings, his creation also should act in covenant with one another. And one of the most significant covenants ever entered into is the marriage covenant. So when we think about it as a covenant, we must affirm at least five essential things about marriage. First, your marriage was meant to be permanent. Covenant always has the idea of permanency built right into it. For that which God has joined together, let no man put asunder. As the rest of Scripture bears out, God hates divorce, and he only permits it in certain very narrow circumstances. Second, your marriage is sacred. Again, it is ordained by God. It is not merely a human agreement or a civil union. It is a relationship before God and under God. Human beings are not allowed to redefine marriage or create it in their own image. Since it is sacred, marriage is meant to give God glory. Third, your marriage is meant to be intimate. Now, we covered that in our last podcast. By its unique covenant nature, it is the most intimate of all human relationships, actually uniting two people to become one flesh. It involves leaving one's family of origin and cleaving to one's spouse. One flesh suggests the deepest of human covenant bonds. Fourth, your marriage is designed to be mutual. It is a relationship of free self-giving of one person to another. God has designed marriage to be of mutual help to both spouses. As we have said in a previous podcast, mutuality does not mean sameness in role, but it does mean sameness in priority, the priorities of love, help, sacrifice, giving, and grace. And fifth, marriage is defined by its exclusivity. No other person is to enter into the marital dyad. God's covenant design excludes other partners, so adultery is forbidden. This also means that other people are not to get into the middle of our marriage, whether it be parents, siblings, friends, or children. If marriage is the most intimate covenant relationship of all, it must be protected and always kept exclusive. So these are the foundational concepts of the covenant of marriage, which should always be on your mind, especially when you are struggling in your marriage. Say them with me. My marriage is meant to be permanent. My marriage is sacred. My marriage is meant to be intimate. My marriage is designed to be mutual. My marriage is to be exclusive. While these foundational principles apply to all marriages, a Christian marriage is required to go further. It is to be thoroughly connected to our relationship with Jesus Christ. And that should make sense to us since God's relationship to us in Jesus Christ is covenantal as well. It is forged in the covenant of grace. God is the one who gives his people to his son as his bride. It is Jesus who perfectly keeps the covenant with the Father, 
and we enjoy the benefits of that covenant of grace. So for Christians, the covenant of marriage is designed to be a reflection of that covenantal marriage between Christ and the church. It can be a poor reflection of that covenant of grace or a decent reflection of the covenant of grace. If God relates to his people in Christ through a grace-based covenant, then the Christian marriage is to be based in grace as well. Unfortunately, many Christian marriages are built on a faulty foundation of works rather than grace. They reflect the wrong view of Christianity as based on works instead of on the amazing grace of God. You may be thinking, of course I want my marriage to be based on grace rather than on works. But do you know the difference? Could your entire foundation and marriage mentality be one of man-centered works rather than God-glorifying grace? Well, let's spend the rest of the time comparing these two foundations of Christian marriage to see whether you are building your marital house on the rock or on sinking sand. The reality is that it is much easier to build your marriage on a covenant of works than a covenant of grace, even though grace is so much better. A marriage based on works is much more familiar to us as human beings. It fits better with our world as well as with our sinful hearts. If you think about it, every false religion capitalizes on a works-based philosophy to attract its followers. Do all the right things and you will be rewarded. Do wrong things and you will be punished. In the end, false human-based religions promote an earning of your own salvation and happiness as long as you follow all the rules. Yes, God does give us his moral law to follow and obey, yet this is not the basis for our salvation since none of us can obey the law perfectly. Christianity offers something much better than law-keeping and self-salvation. We have a Savior who kept the law perfectly and died a perfect death and rose again to save us from our sins. This is grace. So since our sinful hearts are accustomed to a workspace religion, it is also very tempting for us, even Christians, to put that template onto our marriage. Using some case studies, let me give you the characteristics of a workspace marriage. Alan is a harsh critic of his wife, Beth. In his eyes, she can't seem to do anything just right. Every time she goes to the store, she spends too much. She's too soft with the children. She doesn't attend to his needs enough. Alan thinks he is just trying to be a good spiritual leader when he observes those deficits in his wife. Beth only hears condemnation. So the first characteristic of a workspace marriage is one or both spouses primarily focused on what the other person is doing, mainly what he or she is doing wrong. Beth clearly has places to improve as a wife. She does overspend. She does need to become a better disciplinarian. Yet Alan is so focused on her failures that he doesn't take responsibility for his own. He loses his temper when she spends too much money, blaming her for his anger and fear. He shows her very little love and kindness, rationalizing that she doesn't give him attention and love either. Alan really believes he is the better spouse, yet will not admit when he is doing something wrong. 
So our second related characteristic of marriage based on works is spouses who take very little personal responsibility for their own actions and their own responses. Connie has always been a highly driven, successful woman in school, in sports, in her job, in everything. She is well known for being good at just about everything. No one can compete with her. So in her eyes, her husband Dave can't seem to do things exactly right. When he does yard work, he is not as detailed as he should be. When he does the bills, he doesn't pay them the way she would. He also doesn't fix things fast enough around the house or do proper maintenance on the cars. He doesn't even know how to change the oil. Connie tries to be patient, but she just can't hide her disappointment. She wishes Dave would be more driven like her. So the third characteristic then of a workspace marriage is very high expectations. Now we all have expectations of our spouses and ourselves, but when they get to levels of perfectionism and performance, mercy and kindness are usually in short supply. Well, let's stick with Connie for our next characteristic. What happens when Dave fails to do a certain task well or take care of something he was supposed to? All Connie knows how to do is to hammer Dave with her words. Like a five-star general, she somehow feels that being tough on Dave will make him improve. He needs to be pushed and challenged to be a better husband. Any showing of mercy will simply enable him to fail again the next time. Unfortunately, Dave is now afraid that he can't do anything right at all. So he ends up quitting rather than trying harder. So this fourth characteristic of a workspace marriage is one of condemnation when your spouse fails you. And even though Connie just disapproves of Dave's behavior, Dave feels like she disapproves of him as a husband and as a person. Well, let's stick with Connie and Dave for this next one. Connie is at her wit's end trying to motivate Dave to do better. She is ending up thinking about him more as an irresponsible child than as her spiritual head and loving husband. Other than just condemning words, she has tried several other methods to get him to change. She has withheld love from him, being less affectionate when he fails her. She has tried to manipulate him with guilt and shame, talking about how other husbands do such a better job. She has even resorted to threats of separation or divorce if his actions don't improve. But again, nothing is helping. Connie just keeps going through a cycle of various measures, more extreme all the time, hoping that Dave will wake up and do what's right one day. So the fifth characteristic of a workspace marriage is the regular use of threats, manipulation, and withholding of love to force the other spouse to change. The goal is to find something that works, anything that works. Well, let's move on to Edgar and Francis. They've been married for 14 years. Edgar loves his wife, yet he finds it difficult to be loving when she isn't loving to him first. So if he comes home from work and she is on the phone or trying to get the kids settled down, he takes it to mean that she doesn't care about him as much as she cares about other people. Instead of showing Francis love, he retreats into his laptop or just turns on the TV. Francis thinks Edgar is only loving towards her when he wants something from her. She feels more used than loved. 
So here we have the sixth characteristic of a workspace marriage, conditional love. Only giving love when our spouse meets certain conditions or does certain things for us. Now, just to be clear here, no sinful human being can give another human being unconditional love. Only Christ loves his people unconditionally. We always have some conscious or unconscious conditions when it comes to loving our spouse. But when it becomes our main operating system to always think in terms of how I'm being loved before I can really love the other, we are stuck in the work of only offering conditional love. That is not grace at all. Well, now let's talk about Francis and Edgar some more. Francis struggles with forgiving Edgar. Even when he apologizes, he just doesn't seem sincere or he doesn't use the right words. Edgar needs to really know how bad he has hurt her before she says the words, I forgive you. Even then, Francis typically adds, uh, but please don't ever do that again. In Francis's mind, Forgiveness feels like giving Edgar a free pass, not holding him accountable for his bad actions. It just doesn't seem fair. After all, Edgar does way more wrong than Francis would ever think of doing. So you hear the seventh characteristic of a workspace marriage, don't you? Conditional forgiveness. Conditional forgiveness, which is really not true forgiveness at all. And in many marriages trapped in a covenant of works, there is rarely any forgiveness offered at all. Which leads us to our next example. When asked about her marriage, Gail mainly remembers how hard things have been. She talks about the first year of her marriage to Henry like it was yesterday. That first year was so bad. He was so selfish, so mean, so unloving to me. She admits that things are better now, but when problems arise, her mind goes back to the past and all the things Henry did to her. Gail even claims that those things hurt as much now as they did back then. He would call me names and curse at me when we fought. He forgot our wedding anniversary several times. He would rather watch TV than ever talk to me. Gail illustrates the next characteristic of a workspace marriage, long memories of hurts. And as you can tell, not just long, vague, general memories, but very specific ones, with pain still attached. Gail may feel like she has forgiven Henry, but something is still missing. She is still operating from a works-based mentality. Of course, Gail is not just stuck in the past. Wrong things that Henry does to her today just remind her of the past. So let's use her for our ninth characteristic. Gail cannot enjoy her marriage because she is regularly let down by Henry. He does better for a few weeks, getting her hopes up. But then he loses his temper or says something mean and they are back to square one. Gail says that she's not angry at this point. She's just disappointed in Henry. As a Christian husband, he should be much better than he is. This is the characteristic of being regularly disappointed and let down. There's no joy in the marriage because there is so much to be disappointed about. We should be so much better at this point is often the cry. Or I would have never envisioned that we'd be struggling with these same things at this point. Which leads us to our 10th characteristic of a workspace marriage. 
Inez and James have been married for about 25 years. That's quite an accomplishment, right? But not in either of their eyes. All they can see is that it has been a rocky, rocky road. They'll experience a few months of peace, followed by another few months of conflict. They just can't find any real lasting tranquility in their marriage. Both of them express the belief that this should be so much easier. Christian marriage should be just filled with highs, not lows. What they don't realize is that regular and extreme ups and downs, a very rocky marriage, is often a characteristic of a works-based marriage. The ups and downs are often the result of many of the things we've already talked about. Conditional love and forgiveness, regular condemnation, extremely high expectations, weapons of threats, manipulation, and withholding love. Couples who are evaluating the success of their marriage based on performance or change or works will see it as underperforming most of the time. Well, all of our couples have this next characteristic of a workspace marriage, whether they realize it or not. It is communicated in a variety of ways. If he would just then I would. When she does that, I get so angry, disappointed, hurt. He just isn't doing the things he needs to do. She is not doing what I want her to do. This 11th characteristic is simply good old-fashioned self-centeredness. It is making the marriage all about me, my comfort, my needs, my wants, my desires. Of course, no one likes to admit that they are self-centered. I didn't even realize how selfish I was until I got married, when my wife told me, and she was right. Finally, we have Kate and Larry. How do we know that they are stuck in a workspace marriage? When they get into a conflict, Kate says things like, I'm getting so tired of you. I don't know how much more I can take. You exhaust me. And often, I can't stand it any longer. Messages of fatigue dominate their marriage. When asked about the lasting feeling in their marriage, all Kate can say is, I'm always tired. This twelfth and last characteristic of a works-based marriage is exhaustion. A marriage based on works is totally exhausting. A life based on performance and competition and doing, doing, doing is by definition fatiguing. This final quality of the covenant of works is where all these marriages end up, with two spouses who are depressed, tired, worn out, and exhausted. Unfortunately, this is not the exhaustion of hard work or a job well done. Certainly, marriage is difficult and tiring, but when there is little grace, it is just draining all the time. So do you see yourself in any of those examples? I certainly do see myself. Oftentimes our marriages jump the tracks between being on a grace-based path and move over to a workspace path. Then, as we have said already, it becomes easier to build our marriage on that foundation of works, performance, expectation, and condemnation. Let's then give these couples the antidote the character qualities of a marriage based on grace rather than a marriage based on works. First, 
A grace-based marriage accepts the other person for who he or she is. Rather than the focus being on change and performance, it is on loving acceptance. Now, what I mean by acceptance is not accepting sinful behavior, but accepting and embracing the person. There still needs to be change, but it's not the primary purpose of marriage. The drive becomes to show the other person that I love you for who you are, warts and all. Second, a grace-based marriage is bathed in forgiveness for wrongs done. The only competition in a marriage should be a race for who will forgive the fastest. Forgiveness is not conditional or withheld or somehow only given when it is deserved. Forgiveness runs freely in the grace-based marriage. Third, spouses in a grace-based marriage refuse to engage in list-keeping. As Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 13, love keeps no record of wrongs. The very essence of grace is that we keep no lists or at least very short lists. We don't hold on to wrongs done against us even though it is tempting. We refuse to keep lists in order to prove how often our spouse does something or neglects to do something else. Fourth, a grace-based marriage is all about loving one who doesn't deserve it. It is intentionally focused on loving the unlovable. A grace mindset realizes that I am unlovable. I don't deserve to be loved. And it also knows that we are loving a spouse who is unlovable. So it takes out of the equation the idea that our spouse must earn our love or that I deserve to receive love. Any and all love given is because of grace. Do you really know that you are undeserving of your spouse's love? Well, fifth, the same goes for respect. A grace-based marriage is about showing our spouse respect even when he or she doesn't deserve it. If you only show respect to your spouse when he or she acts respectable, then you don't understand respect in marriage. Respect is something given as a gift in honor of the person's position. Wives respect husbands as the spiritual leader, even when he's not leading well. Husbands are to respect and honor wives as the weaker vessel, even if she is not acting kindly and lovingly to him. Again, this is grace because none of us are worthy of honor or respect. Sixth, a a grace-based marriage is infused with sacrificial love. This one should be obvious. Only loving a person when they deserve it requires no risk and no sacrifice at all. But grace is willing to sacrifice it all, all the time. There is no limit to sacrifice. What does it do to a marriage when one spouse is clearly acting in sacrificial love? That cannot be ignored. In a workspace marriage, a spouse may sacrifice for a little while, but quickly give up and resort to more unloving measures. Seventh, a grace-based marriage has very little retaliation, revenge attempts, or manipulation. Making threats or retaliating when wronged has no place in the Christian marriage. It demonstrates a works mentality with little grace. Having a grace mindset leaves vengeance to the Lord, refusing to pay back when sinned against. This includes withholding love, affection, or attention. Eighth, 
Grace-based marriages also don't engage in scorekeeping. We are used to everything being a competition in this fallen world. It's a sad thing when our greatest rival becomes our spouse. Marriage must not be about winning and losing, me against her, my way or your way. Grace seeks to give and to serve in all meekness. When there are winners or losers, then the marriage loses in the end. Ninth, a marriage grounded in grace resists self-righteousness. This is the mentality that says, I'm working harder on this marriage than you are. As I have said in other episodes of this podcast, self-righteousness is a killer of many a Christian marriage. When one spouse believes he is trying harder, doing better, changing more, sacrificing more, then that self-righteousness will turn to anger, bitterness, and depression. A grace-based marriage focuses on Christ's righteousness and his goodness rather than on our very weak righteousness and goodness. Finally, to be fully grace-based, a couple must always remember that this marriage is about God, not about me. God is to be glorified since we are in covenant with God through Jesus Christ not just in covenant with one another. This means that there is a much higher purpose for my marriage than getting my needs met or my own happiness or my own well-being. It's all about God, not about me. So how does all this sound to you? If these characteristics of a grace-based marriage sounds like cheap grace or a recipe for a lot of pain and suffering, then you don't know the power of God's grace for you or for your marriage. Certainly, a marriage based on grace does not preclude biblical confrontation, truth-telling, rebuke, and correction. Showing grace is never passive. It is always active. But if you are having trouble getting your head around a covenant of grace, then you are probably stuck in a works mentality, maybe even in your relationship with Christ. To properly understand and apply a grace-based foundation in your marriage, dig down deep into God's grace for you. What does that look like? How does that play out in your life each and every day? Then show that grace on a daily basis to your spouse. Thank you for listening to Biblical Counseling Today with Dr. John Kwasney. This weekly podcast is supported by Biblical Counseling and Training Ministries, which you can learn more about at bctministries.com. If you have found yourself encouraged or challenged today, please share this podcast with your church, family, and friends. Rate us on iTunes and your social media outlets. It really helps. Until next time, may you enjoy the riches of God's compassionate grace and mercy in your life.